0: Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. In this edition, producer Morgan Tams reveals a unique solution to our compulsive obsession with acquiring more and more stuff.
1: Tires, boat parts, camper trailers, vehicles, moldy and broken furniture, fridges, freezers, household goods, computers and TVs and printers, fencing, plastic furniture, tarps, styrofoam, crappy plastic. Have you ever taken
2: a walk around your local garbage dump? Ever waded through the debris and household waste to try to make some sense of it all? It doesn't take long to realize the impact our society's appetite for cheap and disposable consumer goods is having on our environment. Both in the making and in the trashing, our modern world's taste for getting and spending puts incredible strain on our global resources. And perhaps worse, these hollow consumerist habits have replaced our sense of community and belonging with worthless attachments to better cars, new clothes, bigger homes, and the latest electronic gadgets. Ironically, the same consumer products which are leaving us more disconnected than ever before. Whether at home amongst cluttered shelves with never enough time to dust, or sorting through the landfill, we are in fact swimming in stuff. Elegant.
1: You owe it to yourself to take the wheel nineteen ninety-five so small it fits in your pocket. In your black...
2: But on a small island off the coast of British Columbia, there is a local solution to this looming global catastrophe. The Cortez Island Free Store is a space where all manner of unwanted items are saved from the landfill, finding new homes amongst the island community.
3: Towels, blankets, oilskin coat,
2: pair
4: of blundstones, which were in really good condition. I got
3: an antique sewing bench that opens up. Brand new pair of Adidas shoes. Videos, movies, silk pants. A beaver fur coat that I used as my baby blanket. Antique
5: juice press. Rain gear and hip waders and... Leather jacket with a unicorn patch.
0: A Spider-Man fishing rod.
3: Skates and skis and ski boots.
0: A gallon bucket of crab
3: boil. Cashmere sweaters.
2: Dildos? The residents of Cortez are keen to share in the good vibes. Donating their unwanted but still usable items to the free store instead of just throwing them out. At this island institution, community volunteers help sort items and maintain a space where shopping and socializing benefit both the environment and the community. Speaking with island residents, it doesn't take long to see what makes the free store such a special place.
3: It's a resource for the community because it's The Gap, it's Marshall Fields, it's the diaper store, it's the shoe store, It's the toy store, it's the library, it's all of those things and it's free and um, it didn't take long for it to become, have a life of its own.
2: In operation since 1993, the Cortez Island Free Store works to help minimize the environmental impact of the small island community and has become the most popular store on the island, despite the fact that no currency actually changes hands. But how did this space come about? What led to its development? And what can the rest of the world possibly learn from this unique model? To begin, let's take a quick look at the history of waste in this region. The earliest inhabitants of this area have left little behind over the tens of thousands of years that they have occupied this land. Food, shelter, clothing and medicine all came directly from the natural environment and as such, decomposed and returned to the space from which it came when no longer needed. Appearing around 2500 BC, shell middens are possibly the one space that might be compared to our modern waste management centers. As coastal peoples became less migratory, these piles of mollusk shells are believed to have been designated village dump sites. In British Columbia, There are shell middens that run for more than a kilometer along the coast and are several meters deep. The midden in Namu BC, for example, is over 9 meters deep and spans over 10,000 years of continuous occupation. Aside from a resting place for discarded shells and food waste, middens also contain a detailed record of what was eaten or processed thousands of years ago. Many fragments of stone tools and household goods found in middens have made them invaluable objects of archaeological study. In the future, when our ancestors or groups of alien settlers rummage through our waste, what do you think our vast and deep piles of old computer printers will say about us? The first European settlers arrived on Cortez in the late 1800s. Among them, Mike Manson, who settled on a piece of land that is now Linnea Farm on the island's south end. I meet up with his great-great-grandson, Bruce Ellingson, at his home on the windswept Reef Point Farm to try and further unpack the development of a garbage problem on the island, and to learn how waste products were dealt with as increasing numbers of settlers began to arrive on the land.
6: I'm Bruce Ellingson. I've uh, grown up on the island. I was six years old when the family moved down here from Phillips Arm. I think when we moved to Vondana Pinlet there was something like 325 people living on the island at that time, 1946. Things tended to get used a lot more thoroughly in those days and by the time they were worn out and no longer serviceable they would just tend to get put to the side and rot away. Those old things that were made so well though I mean some of the old 1920s and 30s vehicles are still, you can still find the odd one out in Carrington Bay or places like that on the island. There was just so much less of it that it it just sort of didn't seem to be a problem.
2: What did garbage and recycling look like at that time?
6: The logging camp there was a dump back behind the one of the piles of gravel that were all the, the waste, whatever there might be, which would be mainly glass and or tin cans, would be dumped into. Other people living inland would, would just dump it in either an excavation if they were a little more tidy about it or just dump it in the bush behind a big log or something like that. Some people like Ken Hanson used to burn his tin cans, he said, and, and put them underneath the fruit trees for mineral nutrients for the fruit trees. That was his claim anyway.
2: I guess glass and cans were pretty standard in the early days and low impact on the environment. But what about other materials?
6: Just going back to my childhood when the the store down at Manson's Landing, things were brought in in bulk. You bought whatever amount you wanted at a pound or half a pound or whatever it was, you know or a dozen or whatever it was you were buying. That went into a brown paper bag and you took it home and the bag would go into your wood stove or your garbage burner or something like that, or if you tossed it out, it would just break down in the next rainfall and disappear. And if you bought some meat at the store there, the guy in the store would usually cut it up for you off a side of beef that was in the cool room at the back and wrap it up in brown paper, and you'd take it home. And there was no plastic or styrofoam or sticky plastic labels or anything of that nature. When plastics came on the scene, then, then you get into a situation where you're starting to get more and more containers and more and more more single-use materials that things come in. Once you've got the item, you take it out of that container and basically have to throw the container away. By the 60s and 70s, well after the Second War, that's really starting to become a noticeable challenge for people and how they dealt with that. More and more stuff was accumulating up the side roads where people would just drive in and dump it off and disappear. You know. It's that slow development of those sort of situations, just like garbage on Cortez, you know, when, when there weren't that many people here, and containers were simpler in the way that being disposed of, and there weren't that many containers compared to nowadays, if people disposed of it in their backyard or out in the logging road or something like that, it would slowly break down and, and disappear. But when when it starts accumulating, especially with non-degradable stuff, uh, it pretty soon starts to become an obvious problem. But it's it's that slow Growth of the situation that that often makes it difficult for us to realize. It's like the frog in the cool water that brings is brought up to the boil. You know, you don't really notice it until it's too late. Can you
2: explain that analogy a bit more?
6: Well, I just. Understand from what I've read, I've never seen it, I've never tried it myself or seen anybody try it. (laughs) I understand that if you put a frog into a, a pot of cool water and just slowly bring it up to the boil, the frog will gradually acclimatize himself to the increasing temperature in that water until finally he's cooked before he realizes it.
2: Are we on track to being cooked as well? Are our consumer habits getting the better of us as we create increasingly high amounts of waste products? As I walk here through Carrington Lagoon, old cars and piles of tin cans can still be found, but feel somehow harmless now as the trees grow through them, and deep green moss hides the rest from view. With the introduction of both the ferry in 1969 and power in 1970, more and more dreamers began to flock to Cortez, and of course with them came an increase in waste products and the need to develop a more permanent solution of what to do with all their leftover junk. Spending some time on the island, I get the sense that there's a great consciousness here about not continually stripping the earth of its resources and putting them back in a hole. And yet by the 1990s, the island dump was just that, a hole in the ground, and the woods littered with decaying machinery and worse.
3: I got told once, Dova, you can't save the whole world, but you can save a little small part of it. So I said, "Okay, I will stop trying to save the planet, and I'll just try and save Cortez instead. Dova Wiltshire ran the first incarnation of the
2: Cortez Island Recycling Center from 1991 to 2013. Now retired, she remains a vocal supporter of everything the free store stands for, and even still jumps in for the occasional volunteer shift.
3: When I first moved to Cortez, there was no recycling at that point. They wanted to do it. At that point, what they had was there was a big, big hole in the ground. That's where everything went. And that's all that was there. So I was hired to get it going, start something, make a recycling center. So there was the one structure was just basically a roof with four posts and a platform. It was 16 feet by 32 feet, slab ends for the walls, the slab part on the outside, smooth on the inside. Um, some donated windows, a donated door, it was a shack, but it was sufficient to get you out of the blizzard and to keep the paper dry. So that winter, somebody came, the first thing that came was a couch, and somebody came with a sofa. We're still throwing everything into the hole in the ground, by the way. We didn't have dumpsters yet. So this person came along with the sofa, and I said, this sofa's still really good, and I really feel bad about throwing it in the pile. I really don't want to do it, but I don't know what else to do with it. And I'm like, well, you know, we could use a sofa. Bring it in here. And that came in, and then the next person came along, and they had a box of books, and they didn't want to throw them away. So I'm like, well, you know, bring them in here, and I'll sort through them and see if maybe we'll read them. And so one of my helpers said, well, I'll build a shelf, and we can put those books on a shelf. And then the next thing we got was a box of records, and then we had to build another shelf, and... And then we got clothes, and then we had to build a place to put, hang up the clothes. So we hang up the clothes, and then the next thing you know, people are coming in and saying, what have you got? And the free store was born. (laughs) As soon as somebody brought that first box of books in, and we built a shelf and stuck them up, somebody else brought another box of books. And somebody took a book home. Said, why don't you get the book? Free store. It wasn't even the free store then, it was the dump. It was still the dump. I can't remember when we decided to start calling it the free store, but not too long afterward. How did the public
2: react to this sort of new idea of recycling and of having a recycling center on the island?
3: There wasn't a lot of difficulties. I did run into some backlash from locals that were longtime, old-timey folks. I sent out a survey at one point. I guess it was like two or three years into the game. That's where I really found out about how the old fogies feel about us.
6: I've been chucking my car out back since 06, and I ain't going to stop now. I always done burn my tin cans, and you can't stop me from doing it. All you environmentalists showing up here telling me I can't throw my batteries in the woods no more.
3: I got garbage? I just chuck it in the woods. I've always been that way. So I thought, okay, you've been doing that for how many bazillion years here on Cortez? Let's clean up the woods. So I organized the cleanup. We took 300 vehicles, four barge loads of stuff out of the woods. We only left things that had trees growing through them. Everything else went. And then we built an extension. A few years later, we had to build an extension. And then next thing you know, we got the recycling going really well, and we built the recycling bays. Oh, that was so much fun. And I put the word out, and next thing you know, materials start arriving, and uh, here you need some beams, or how about two-by-sixes? Can you use them? Next thing you know, we've got recycling bays. So, you know, glass, tin, plastic, paper. Plus, we have the other half which is the shed where the free store was living and in between those we built a hazardous waste shed because we were getting used oil and mixed gas and paints and dubious looking chemicals that nobody was really quite sure what they were but they needed to be somewhere and they weren't going in the ground that was f- for sure and so then there was the free store was exclusively for the free store there was no more storage and it had grown immensely like this amount of volume of stuff coming in and more shelving and more shelving and cubby holes and racks for clothes but the free store was getting to be so overcrowded so we put an eight by 16 foot extension on it and again put the word out materials came flooding in volunteers came flooding in We did it in a weekend, started it on Saturday morning, and by Sunday afternoon, it was ready to start hanging clothes up again. This time, though, we emptied the store. The whole space got completely emptied. All the old shelving came down. Everything got got stripped right back down to the wood, and it got drywalled. Insulation... Baseboard heaters. Whoa, whoa, whoa! So fancy. It's practically a real store. It was so exciting. I just loved it. It was great. And the community. It was their store. It wasn't my store. It belonged to all of us. And then in the summer of the year 2000, we got vandalized. The store got trashed. It wasn't locked, it was never locked, but it got trashed. And it was extremely upsetting for all of us. And so we did our best to get it, you know, everybody pitched in to clean it up and to restock and so on. A lot of stuff had to go in the landfill that never would have gone in landfill if it hadn't been trashed like that. Two weeks went by, they hit again. This time they broke every single window. If it could break, they broke it. That was devastating. Everybody was, people were crying. I was crying. And it took us quite a while to clean it up. We cleaned it up. And we boarded up the windows and um, put tape around and plastic on the door so we could still use the door. And two weeks later, it happened again. So it happened the last week in June, the first week in July, and the third week in July. The third week in July, when they came in, not only did they just destroy everything in sight, I mean, they ripped everything. It was like they'd go along to a shelf and just go like this, and everything that was on the shelf is now on the floor. They stomped all over everything. They did their bathroom on stuff. Not only were we cleaning up the garbage, but we were also cleaning up human waste. This was beyond devastating. We just stood around holding each other, crying. It was just like, why do they hate us so much? Like, it felt so personal. It was like a serious personal attack. And I said, you know what? That's it. We're closing. No more free store. Shut Done. Over.
2: You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. It is incredible to see the transition from an empty lot with a big hole in the ground to the efficient space it has become today. Once again, the community rallied behind Dova and without permits or permission, but armed with a deep understanding of the value of what they were doing, they once again picked up the pieces and rebuilt, this time with locking doors. (laughs) This idea of recycling is of course not a new concept, but a very old one. For the Coast Salish, in whose territory Cortez Island sits, whether a tree, plant, or an animal, traditional teachings dictate that the whole of the object was used, and nothing was left to waste. This practice is partially tied to an animist belief system, where the sky, trees, moon, and all the animals have individual personalities and spirits, leaving nothing to waste as a form of honoring the sacrifice that is being made in order to help the survival of another being. And of course, it's incredibly resourceful as well. Looking around the free store today, it is clear what an institution it has become. A sign that reads... Shoplifting is encouraged, hangs above the doorway, and there is a constant flow of people dropping off objects and leaving with boxes full of newfound treasures. It is truly a space built by the community, for the community. Rummaging through a pile of discarded five-gallon buckets, I meet Max Thason, who runs a building material salvage company on the island. When the
7: connections between all the stuff and all the other somewhat related problems in the world or ways that we're messing everything up is disconnection from where things come from and how they're made and who gets screwed along the way it's like when you go to a store none of that stuff is there and it's so easy when you're a product of this culture to just get it without thinking about it which is part of the the way that i think about trying to be responsible for your own things it's like you can actually be aware of your impacts if it's all coming from the place that you live or from your own efforts or from the world around you but yeah as soon as stuff comes from far away it's like the story gets messy and it's almost all terrible i mean to greater or lesser degrees but all that stuff is gross legacy
2: even the littlest things over the past 10 years Max has crafted a minimalist lifestyle for himself based on low environmental impact and self-sustainability.
7: It's a lot about uh, personal responsibility for as many aspects of staying alive as possible and uh, all the fun exploration and learning that goes along with that. The ease of my life or the convenience or the comfort has a lot to do with how much excess there is in this part of the world. Building materials are free, clothes are free... I used to do a bunch of dumpster diving in the city and food was free. As long as you're willing to accept what's available, which is quite astounding.
2: In what ways are you trying to live a lower impact lifestyle?
7: Well, I guess the big one is the house that I live in with my partner is made mostly of recycled or like found free objects. Other houses that were getting torn down, I helped take them apart and reuse stuff and found some stuff at the free store we paid for one used window so that's kind of like buying but it's still recycled sometimes when I talk about the tiny home movement and how maybe we're part of part of this tiny home thing it feels really different the way that we're doing it maybe because we're trying to be as self-reliant as we are um, which requires a lot of stuff if you're doing canning and food processing and building you know at least the way we do it requires all these tools and resources and buckets you can have a lot of it if, as long as you've got enough roofs you can have as much as you want
2: there are a lot of roofs here aren't there
7: yeah so we have maybe uh 200 square foot indoor living space and maybe like 800 square foot of roofed outdoor storage and workspace bunch of that is for for the firewood for the wood stove and some of that's for a little workshop and some of that's to store bottles and jars and buckets and lumber and uh bikes and motorcycles yeah but it's definitely more roof outside than inside i have a pretty extensive junk pile and a lot of the stuff in it i probably won't use some of that stuff I feel like I'm kind of keeping, just because it's wrong for it to be thrown out and that somebody will use it someday. There's kind of a justice element to it, like like the world made a sacrifice for this material to exist. Just throw it out because we don't feel like looking at it anymore feels quite wrong. Somebody could have died for that piece of metal that can replace a piece of metal that somebody will die for in the future. So I think junk piles and storing things and is a way of honoring the sacrifices.
2: Chatting with Max outside his home, I realized that despite astounding efforts to live a minimalist lifestyle on Cortez Island, it turns out he still requires a considerable amount of stuff to keep both him and his partner afloat. And I wonder if there is a bit of an irony in that situation sometimes I like to point out to
7: myself or remind myself or point out to other people that the way that I'm trying to live simply or with less it doesn't mean that I'm not consumerist there's still a lot of consumerist drive and excitement about getting new things and finding treasure or getting shopping so the free store is a really exciting shopping experience and I think that's fun for everybody. It's a big drive, it's uh, guilt-free shopping
2: and cash-free shopping. Hanging around with Max has led me to wonder if everyone on the island is as mindful of their consumption and recycling habits as the folks I've met so far. The community as a whole seems committed to the environment and incredibly supportive of recycling in its various forms as one would expect from residents on the west coast of British Columbia. I tracked down the current supervisor of the dump, Brian Feifel, as he shovels some fresh gravel at the foot of one of the new yellow waste disposal bins.
1: A lot of people think everyone on this island recycles. That is not a fact at all. We only have 40% of the island really are into recycling. And the other 60 hit or miss if they're in the mood. So a good effort could be put out the public to, be more aware. But it's Canadian, it's a world problem. It's not Cortez Island. So some of them still throw it in the bush. We're getting fewer and fewer of those types that... Most people now, they look around here and they want to participate in this. They see their money being spent wisely, and they see the effort the regional district's putting in here, the, my staff is put in here, and we get tons of compliments that just keep up the good work. And none of us have egos, so it's not like Look what we did, right? We're just we hear that and a grit, we're on the right, we're doing the right thing here.
2: Brian takes me inside the recycling center itself, where the bottles and the cans that come through the dump get sorted. Despite its utilitarian stature, inside, it is a bright and animated space, full of strange items saved from the landfill. A collection of sombreros hangs from a roof beam, and rubber Halloween werewolf masks occupy another space. But it is the ragtag collection of paintings on the far wall that really catch my eye.
1: This was in the trash or to be put in trash. And then once I started, I didn't want to throw it out. <laughs> I said, this stuff is way too good. And a lot of this stuff is from locals. Like these came out of local buildings that was locally painted. All these were locally painted. This artwork is from people that are no longer with us or no longer live here. So we have their memories up here. And uh, then everyone got excited with it, they like it. So it made a boring building, pretty pretty workable. This is the kids' wall over here where kids are dabbling in artwork. And then it just continues on.
2: Brian's way of honoring local artists is truly touching. Not only because his idea of an art gallery in a garbage dump is an outstanding one, but also because nearly every one of those paintings was saved from the landfill. It is clear he is passionate about his work. And we continue chatting as we walk outside.
1: See all these new rails? See, this is the government. They're making this into a real no-nonsense place, just like everywhere. A man died in the Kamloops. He fell in a dumpster. That's where this all started about three, four years ago. So now rails everywhere, safety first, and I'm a safety guy anyway, so. But the free is a great concept, just in our particular case, how we've expanded in the wrong location. Because in the summer, people want to hang around here for an hour, hour and a half, two hours socializing, but we don't have the room. So we're starting to get a lot of accidents in here uh, because it's too crowded, people can't see. So it's, uh, it's kind of a mutual respect thing. Free store is great, but people need to take into consideration it's also inside of a center. Hanging out at the free store on a busy Friday, I can see how it became
2: such a social hub. While pretending to look at trashy romance novels, I instead eavesdrop on all kinds of great local gossip, and am amazed at the discussions that emerge over the strange array of items that get brought into the store. Bragging about a copy of the White Album I recently found, it only takes about five minutes to learn that the fellow I was telling the story to was the same fellow who dropped it off earlier that day, and he originally scored it from the free store too. The community here, despite an effort to minimize their planetary footprint, is in fact connected by their relationship with objects and the sharing of unwanted items. I meet up with Patricia Leroux, a Free Store volunteer, to ask her about working at the Free Store and her own relationship with stuff. So how did you get involved at the Free Store?
5: Well... I'm a rag picker, I always have been. I love uh, looking at other people's junk. And so, I mean, initially, I just went to see what was going on there. You know, initially it was a bit self-centered, getting stuff for myself and being in the community and making new friends and all of that was really great for me. But then I started to be more aware of all the stuff we were keeping out of the landfill. It's just pathetic how much stuff we have. And it's not just the amount of stuff, it's the way it's being produced. I'm very... uh, unhappy with you know people being paid minimum wages and working 17 hours a day and all of that like in the third world countries producing stuff that's sold here for like probably 400% markup. I mean the whole thing is just scandalous to me and on a grand scale I can't do anything about it but on the free store I can do a little bit about it and so that's part of my my value behind it as well is contributing to not needing to get more stuff because it's all right here and it's free.
2: Why do you think it works so well in a community like Cortez?
5: It's a big trip to go to Campbell River or Victoria or Vancouver to go shopping. And then when you do, the prices are just ridiculous and the clothes aren't that suitable to this area. So it's like a little microcosm, you know, that what's in there has come from people that live here. So it's stuff that people that live here want. And, you know, everywhere else there's lots of thrift stores, but they're not cheap anymore. Especially after you're used to getting things from the free store to go in Value Village and see like $17 for a shirt. Are you kidding? (laughs) I would be on paper under the poverty line, but my quality of life, you can't buy that. It's wonderful. But you can have a really nice life without a lot of money, other than, you know, rent and food are expensive as they are everywhere. But as far, like, as, far as needing to buy clothes um, or boots or coats or anything like that, it's just such a bonus. It's really helpful.
2: What do you envision for the future of the free store?
5: I'd be happy if it just stayed exactly like it is. I, I don't think expansion is a good idea. Why? um, Because then there'll be more stuff and we'll need more volunteers. And and it's functioning beautifully right now. I, don't, I mostly do not think bigger is better, you know? Haven't you ever had like a favorite little restaurant or a favorite little store that was just suited you? And then two years later, they've expanded and it's all different. I I hate that when that happens. And there's, you know, in the business world, there's such a push for everything to be always growing. It's like, it's working perfectly now, leave it alone.
2: The free store and the recycling center both fulfill a crucial need on the island, with residents and staff very happy with how this community-built project has evolved. But reflecting on what Brian said earlier about safety and location, I start to wonder what other challenges this place might be facing and I sit down with elected representative Noba Anderson to try and get a sense of what the future holds for the island institution.
4: My name is Noba Anderson, and the last eight years I've been the elected regional district representative to local government, the Strathcona Regional District.
2: From your point of view, what kinds of challenges does the future hold for the free store?
4: Well, to be honest, it was only a couple of years ago that people started asking me questions about how we would find funds to upgrade the free store, and I hadn't I hadn't really paid attention to the, the legal status of the free store until then. At some point in the community, and whether that's two years out or 10 years out, I don't know, but is going to need to grapple with um, essentially how to legitimize it.
2: How do you mean exactly?
4: Well, in a day-to-day operational sense, I think it's doing quite well. I mean, they're always looking for volunteers, but it's it's relatively well volunteer staffed, I think, at this point. Um, I have heard from some of the volunteers that there's some just some basic maintenance that's needed. Uh, there's you know, critters in the walls and the post outside is rotten, etc. And and because there's nobody that technically owns the building, it was built by volunteers with donated material, there's nobody that, there's no organization that takes responsibility for it and there's no technical ownership of the building. And so it's in a real grey zone about who has the authority to even do the most modest upgrades. And so the regional district um, has said that they would, you know, turn a blind eye to modest upgrades and and basic repairs. But there isn't any funding to do that other than the funding that there always has been just within the community generated goodwill. Um, So that's just sort of the immediate hurdle in terms of maintaining the building that was built with good intention, but not necessarily a, a whole lot of professionality. There's also an interest slash need, depending on who you talk to, to expand the space, especially in the summer. It's packed in there, and there's literally not enough space to put the amount of things that get donated to the store. And so there's an interest in up to doubling the capacity. But if we were to build onto the space or move it somewhere else and, and make it bigger, then that's a level of upgrade that the regional district is going to have a hard time turning a blind eye to. And so I think we can continue to fly under the radar probably for a number of years here. But at some point, I expect that the powers that be are going to want a level of legitimacy and insurance and building code that it it currently doesn't have. The unfortunate piece in that is that you legally can't add on to a building without bringing the existing building up to code. And I don't know that the existing building makes sense really. So we'd probably be looking at starting fresh, which is a bit daunting.
2: And what about something like insurance?
4: Yeah, I haven't really dug into that a whole lot. My understanding is that the free store is insured as part of the the global property insurance just for um if somebody was to get hurt there and sue the regional district, the regional district is covered if that if people get hurt anywhere on the whole property, it extends to the free store. But there isn't any insurance, as far as I know, beyond that, you know, fire insurance for the actual building or, as you say, for the you know stuff within it. Um, it's not something I've dug into yet a bunch. I've heard through the grapevine that some other municipalities have shied away from getting involved in free stores for precisely for that reason, for not wanting to be liable for people taking things away and then not having them work or being hurt by them and other communities say you know screw it it's important we're doing it anyway the only other model that I'm aware of in the region that is is more solid and legitimized I think than the one that we have here is on Hornby and it would certainly be worth looking into that on Hornby I think they had a similar kind of history of a free store that got built by volunteers etc and they decided to enter into a a tax service to support the free store. So quite apart from the solid waste service, Hornby just itself has its own regional district tax service uh, that supports the, the free store and perhaps to some degree the whole recycling center. Here on Cortez, the recycling center is run by a private contractor who lives here and is totally dedicated to it and loves it. But on Hornby, the actual maintenance of the whole recycle center is run by a community group there, by a nonprofit. Uh, who then also takes responsibility for the running and maintenance of the free store and has funds through a tax base in the community to do that. So that's one way of of legitimizing it. There are certainly other ways of finding funds through local donations and grants and and other ways. It doesn't have to be through taxation at all. But I do expect that the community is going to be more interested in finding long-term ways of legitimizing that service rather than through the regional district having a really heavy hand in, in the operating of it.
2: Back here at the recycling center, it is abundantly clear that the community has no intention of letting it be shut down. I suppose only time will tell as to what happens in the next chapter of the space's colorful history. Seeing how well it functions in this community, I begin to wonder if something can't be learned from the tale of our humble little shack. So I asked Ova about other communities and their interest in starting free stores.
3: I used to get phone calls and emails all the time from people in the obscure little places. Oh, I'm from Moncton, and we sure could use something like that here in Moncton. I said, well, why don't you start one? Um, how would I do that? And I went, well, here's my email address. When you get home, you email me, and, I'll, and we'll talk. So now there's one in Moncton, Halifax charlottetown calgary there's several whistler uh, pemberton ottawa my niece started the one in ottawa uh toronto so all um, pretty much every major city in canada has free store now
2: perhaps the winds are changing and the little free store on cortez island despite its rotting timbers lack of space and uncertain future still manages to inspire people across the country to rethink their consumption habits and to dig in, organize the community, and make something happen. The traditions of respect for the land and its precious resources have not faded from our society altogether, and instead, new models for healthy, creative, and environmentally respectful lifestyles are beginning to emerge. Just imagine the possibilities.
0: Thanks to writer-producer Morgan Tams for this edition of Deep Roots. Our recording engineer is Sean Cowell. Technical help from Rob Selmanovic. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation, other donors, and the Clahoos First Nation for their support. More information can be found at cortezradio.ca.